Welcome to Evan the Counselor Live. Evan the Counselor here. I'm back. I've been on a little bit of a break. You know, I got this thing called a day job and it's quite inconvenient for making content, but sometimes it's good to take a little break and come back fresh. So here I am. We're going to have some new content out this week on TikTok and releasing this podcast finally. Uh, so this is another discussion episode and talking about people of prominence, famous people, and why they are so susceptible to addictions and what we could learn about it. So this is a really interesting topic. And I wasn't sure how it was going to go, but I think it went better than expected. And I think you all are going to enjoy it. So updates on my end. I've been working on the book. One day I will get that out and published. Um, what else is going on? Yeah, just like I said, just really busy at my day job building a counseling practice. And I hope to be able to offer some of these services as we grow. It's all online, and I really hope to be able to offer that to folks who I meet on social media. But right now, I am still meeting with folks. We're doing individual coaching sessions, and I'm enjoying that. So if anyone is interested, as of right now, I'm still offering that. So feel free to reach out, shoot me an email, and feel free to shoot me an email for any reason. I love getting your feedback. Sometimes people send me songs. I like that too. Get some new music. I'm always down with that. So feel free to reach out. And anyways, without further ado, let's go into the discussion episode about celebrities and addiction. All right, welcome to Evan the Counselor Live. I'm Evan the Counselor. Today we're going to do another discussion episode. And today we're going to be talking about celebrities and people of prominence in addiction. And right now we have the live stream going on TikTok. People are going to be asking questions. So for those of you here, feel free to post any questions you have about celebrities and addiction. Now, why am I doing this? This is not for gossip. This isn't TMZ or the tabloids. I think there's some valuable lessons that we can learn from a lot of the people that we often look up to and why the rates of addiction are so high in some of their stories. So I'm not going to get into any juicy gossip, maybe a little bit, but all this is going to be pretty public info. So I did a post and people were a little bit critical of me for that, uh, for that reason. But again, this is all public info. And the reason I'm doing this is to educate. So without further ado, let's get started. So one of the things to note is that celebrities suffer from addiction at much higher rates. I saw there was one poll sent out to a lot of celebs, famous people, and it was something crazy like 40 to 60 percent of famous people have struggled or currently struggle with addiction and now and also mental health, right? As we know, addiction and mental health go hand in hand. And the question is, why is that? Why are celebrities so much more prone? And we've all heard the stories, obviously, you know, a lot of celebrities who have passed away throughout the years uh, from overdoses, addiction, and we're going to go into some of their stories, but the question first is why? Why does that happen? Why are the rates so high? Well, one of the first things, I did a post a while ago about jobs, right? And people who, and people were really interested about this one is what jobs predispose you most to addiction? Um, one of the highest ones that we talked about were lawyers, miners, construction workers, uh, I did the top five, but within the top 10, who I didn't mention 
were entertainers. So people in the entertainment industry, whether it's musicians, film, TV, um, they were in the top 10 and you know, not necessarily just the, the talent per se. However, when it comes to the folks who are on the top of the mountain, they suffer at much higher rates. And we're also going to talk about people of prominence, right? Maybe they're not famous, but people who are rich, people who are wealthy, uh, people well-known in their communities, people of means, of resources, and why that is. So let's go over a few reasons why that may be. Number one is environment. So think about the lifestyle you have as a famous person. One thing that was noted in some of the articles I read was the issue of not having a set schedule. And I know that seems similar, or, or I'm sorry, that, seem, that may seem obvious and simple. But, and someone here mentioned long hours. Yeah, so you may have these blocks of time that are really stressful, that you're working really hard, you're flying all over the place. But there isn't like this set schedule, and I think there is something to that. Or sometimes you have maybe months of downtime and you have a lot of freedom. Uh, a lot of times as people of prominence, people who are celebrities, even though they may work really hard, they have more freedom and they may not have as much structure, right? And that also lends itself to other parts of the lifestyle, right? For folks who are famous, they're almost, they live in a fantasy land, Um that most of us don't get to experience. And one of the things with that is getting basically whatever you want whenever you want it, having people cater to you, having people admire you, people wanting your attention, right? And that goes a long way to enabling someone to basically get away with things that others won't. And for a lot of the people, a lot of the celebrities, famous people who struggle with addiction, they have a lot of enablers. And so what is enabling? What is an enabler? Well, an enabler is someone that provides you with things, someone who shields you from consequences, but basically someone who, or persons who provide or are able to shield you from consequences. Hey, what's up, J-Boy? One of our favorites, J-Boys here. So you can see how that those two things alone would lend themselves, right? You have people who want to impress you, people who want to stroke your ego, maybe people who aren't, people who are going to tell you what you want to hear. And also there's the element of partying, right? There's in the entertainment industry. And one of the jobs I focused on in that last post was restaurants. So think about people who work at restaurants. They work odd hours. It's its own culture. And a part of that culture is drinking. So a lot of people in the culinary and the service industry, they were in the top five as well. So there's a similar element to that lifestyle where there's a lot of partying. I mean, in the entertainment industry, it's fun. Uh, there's parties, there's, you have access, you have access to resources that other people don't. And part of those resources could be substances, drugs and alcohol. I mean, a lot of celebrities will say from a young age, even ones who are like teenagers, right? They go to a party and may get like Coke thrown in their face. Um, and it's, it's like, it's right there. 
So if you have any susceptibility whatsoever, even if you don't, you know, there's all this pressure. And that's the thing with celebrities too, and people of prominence, is they have a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure to succeed. A lot about appearances. Um, one of the things I thought about with the environment with celebrities is like they're playing on a higher playing field, right? So let's think about someone we know in a TV show, right? Let's say like a B-list celebrity, right? Where we would run into them and be like, oh my God, that's got to be so cool. You're famous. And, you know, but to them, right, as, as human beings, we have a tendency to look up, right? It's a, And that's probably a good thing for ambition and pushing, you know, the human ingenuity forward, right? We're always looking up, right? And we're not always grateful for what we have. And so if I'm in an environment surrounded by other celebrities and people with more money, right, all I think about is getting to that next level. And when I'm not at that next level, I could feel bad about myself because I'm, I'm comparing myself to others. And now this is in the entertainment industry for celebrities. That's, there's that principle on steroids, right? And I'm sure a lot of you can relate because think about it. I mean, whoever you are, there are going to be people who are better off than you and people that are worse off than you. But we tend to focus on the people that are better off. Sometimes like, do I want to be a big fish in a small pond or a small fish in a big pond? That's not always an easy question to answer. My opinion is that you're actually happier when you're a bigger fish in the small pond, right? Because, you know, you feel better about yourself. Um, you know, you, you feel like you're doing better. You, you may have more self-esteem. Now, the only issue with that is when you just stay in the small pond. And that's something that stifles people's ambition. And ambition is a double-edged sword. I'm not always saying it's a good thing. Uh, because of ambition, there's a lot of unhappy and dead people, i.e. Julius Caesar, Genghis Khan. They were quite ambitious. Now... For personal development, sometimes, like from a performance standpoint, from an achievement standpoint, you want to be around people that are going to make you better, right? It's like you're the sum of the three people you're around the most. And I believe, I believe there's truth to that. However, when it comes to your happiness, that may be a problem. Um, and I think... You see that a lot with celebrities. There's always like keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak. And I remember uh, Dak Shepard. Oh, and I should absolutely talk about him. I'm going to write this down on my celeb list. But someone like Dak Shepard, you know, I listen to his podcast. It's awesome. It's called Armchair Expert. And he talks a lot about how living in Hollywood, it's like you drive, you drive around Rodeo Drive or whatever, Ventura Boulevard. And you see these posters, right? You see these billboards of the next big show, right? And you see that and you're like, why, why is that not me, right? And so right there, like I said, this is uh, the comparison trap on steroids, right? So now we have all these different factors. We have the environment, the lifestyle, the nature of being famous, having enablers, not having structure, being able to get whatever you want. 
right? And so my opinion, just as a sidebar, is you need to spend time in both ponds, right? And that could also be translated in other areas of your life, which is I'm going to be ambitious. I'm going to look ahead. I'm always going to try to improve. I'm going to try to do better, get better, right? Maybe that's the opposite of Buddhism, right? Being just happy and with whatever, you know, being happy on a mountain in Tibet, wearing one robe and, you know, eating one thing and meditating for 12 hours a day, you know, to find enlightenment and nirvana. That's not, you know, the general human experience. However, we could be ambitious. We could look up. We could try to do better for ourselves, but also spend time looking down the mountain. So I could look up the mountain and see, oh my God, I really want to be higher. I want to be where I see these other people. But it's also important to look down the mountain. I work with this uh, with my clients a lot. I try to instill this, that it's always important to look back down and see where you were at and where you came from. And that in itself is gratitude. And I think a lot of the celebs or people who are prominent, I think the ones that are successful in that environment and are able to maintain their mental health are ones that find a greater sense of gratitude for where they're at. So those are some of the reasons as far as celebrities go, right? And we all know celebrities in the media, the ones who have struggled with addiction. A lot of them we don't know. You know, as I looked at some of the lists of celebs who are in recovery um, or celebs that struggle with addiction, because recovery is different for everyone, right? Just because a celebrity is not, and this just goes for anybody, just because someone is not like in recovery, fully absent and going to 12-step programs doesn't mean they're not in a better place. Some people find recovery through that route. Other people don't. You know, take someone like Drew Barrymore, right? I don't know if Drew Barrymore is sober, completely sober today. She may be. I may be able to look that up. Um, But clearly she's in a better spot than she was. Her as a child star, especially in child stars, you know, we've all heard those cautionary tales. But for her as a child star, she's doing much better, right? I don't know if she's sober. I don't know what her deal is, but um, seemingly much better. Where you know she was a train wreck as a teenager, from my understanding. And think about that as well, right? Imagine being thrust to the top of the mountain at a very young age, because and that's one of the things with being a celebrity too is when you're at the top of the mountain, there's not there's nowhere else to look up to, right? Like the people who achieved everything they wanted, fame, fortune, whatever you want to call it, where do you look up? Because then you're like, okay, I'm here, now what? And that's where people have a lot of trouble, is now what? And then, you know, you're so, as a child star especially, now your whole life is spent trying to maintain that. So now you've gotten used to a level of fame and success that no, almost no one else has. And then you feel isolated too. And that's one of the things with celebrities and having those enablers and folks like Lindsay Lohan and um, rappers, you know, rappers get in trouble a lot as well. You know, it's like you have this posse around you, right? And you're like the top dog and you have people who are, you know, leeching off of them. 
You have people that are, again, enabling them, telling them what they want to hear. And they're really not there for them. They're really not there to help them. Um, and you'll see that all the time. It's a really common experience among celebrities and the ones who get sober is they have to shed some of that dead weight, so to speak. They have to remove that toxic dynamic from their lives. So they're on top of the mountain. They're, you know, experience all the fame and success in the world. Now, what do you do? Now it's like you're fighting to stay up there and that's not easy, right? Think about any celebrity at some point, you know, you're at your peak. You know, I'm sure there's some that, right? I don't know, maybe Betty White, who's, you know, however old in her 90s, still famous going on talk shows and whatever. But, you know, you have to fight to stay up there. And so what happens when you fall? What happens, that's a risk point too for people, is, you know, being famous, being, you know, think about being like a one-hit wonder, right? You have this 15 minutes of fame, but then it goes away. So you experience the highest of highs, and then that's not there anymore. And that's a big risk, too. So then the child stars, right? I mean, some of them, you know, end up pulling it together. And we'll talk about some of the ones who have. Um, and they've been able to maintain their fame, you know, like a Drew Barrymore, Robert Downey Jr. Um, I don't know if he was, he wasn't so much a child. So I think he was like, but pretty young adult. Um, you know, some of the folks who grew up in Hollywood, but that's more the exception than the rule to be able to maintain that. And again, even if you are, like that is, um, you know, even if you're able to maintain that level of fame, that's what you become used to. So the interesting thing about human beings is we are we acclimate very well, for better or worse. So we generally have a baseline level of happiness, and there's things that could happen in your life that will certainly lower the baseline, like living in poverty. Um, you know, experiencing tragedy, trauma, those things will like lower your baseline, things that will still affect you, experiences that will affect you. But other than that, even after having losses, you generally go back to your baseline level of happiness. So if you are not happy with yourself, if you're not content, and then you become a celebrity, you'll have this spike, right? You'll have this like dopamine, you know, happy chemical spike of, oh my God, I'm famous now, I have money, I've never had money before, you know, I have money, fame, access to whoever, you know, for guys, they have access to, you know, any sexual partner they want, it's like the world is your oyster, and that's awesome for a while, but guess what, just like anyone else, you get used to that, you become accustomed, you acclimate, just like getting into the water, oh my God, it's cold, but then you acclimate, oh my God, it's hot, but then you acclimate, getting into a hot tub, getting in, I was swimming at the lake today, it was pretty chilly, but, you know, you get used to it pretty quickly, and that's hard, so now, here you are in this environment, and you're still looking up, you're surrounded by all these folks with pressure to succeed, to be the best, and think about the other unique pressures on celebrities, too, think about beauty, right, beauty is fading, you know, except for me, who I'm going to hopefully look better at 60 than I do now, probably not, you know, Father Time is betting is a uh, batting one thousand, never lost, right? You know, especially you know, not you know, plenty of men have that as well, but women, 
you know, women celebrities and the pressure to look good, to be thin, right? We're going to talk about some celebrities who struggle with addiction, how that was a big part of their story. So, you know, eating disorders, mental health, right? These are all extremely common, and that's because of that pressure as well. So, all right, so now, you know, it, it's looking pretty obvious of why that may be, you know, just being someone of prominence is a risk factor in and of itself. And maybe some more ideas will come to mind of why that is as we go. But let's talk about some famous people who have struggled with addiction. All right, we got the live stream going. We got Demi Lovato, someone said. And yeah, Demi Lovato, I know from a really young age, she struggled with mental health. And she's another one who I believe was a child star, right? She... Isn't she like one of the Disney kids or something? And I'd known people as well, and she's open about this, right? I've, I've even known people who are in treatment with her, and she's really open about it, you know, struggling with bipolar, um, substance abuse, right? And those things are so correlated. So she's another one as a child star, and she very well may have had addiction anyway, you know, having that level of mental health, of having more severe bipolar disorder. Heath Ledger was going to mention that one, right? The deadly celebrity combo of mixing alcohol with pills, right? And it's like, and, and for us who aren't at that level, probably all of us here, um, it's, it's kind of baffling because you think, why is it, right? You have everything. You have absolutely everything, yet these folks are struggling at a higher rate than anybody else, Right. I mean, I think it's like 40 to 60 percent. Sure, we could probably find some other subgroups, but 40 to 60 percent compared to like seven or eight, six, I don't know, something around that of the population in general that struggles with addiction. So, yeah, so, yeah, exactly. So much pressure. Uh, yeah, maintaining perfection. We talked about that. Hi, MG. Mary really wanted me to say hi. So, Mary, we'll say what's up. And so let's let's go through some other people. And again, this is all very public. This is not, you know, this is not like gossip, TMZ. These are people who are open about their stories. Um, and I feel like every story, there's something that we could learn from it, right? So I'll just go down the list. We'll go like, deeper into some than others. So Chris Farley. And I said in one of my videos on this that I did this week is that Chris Farley, I felt like struggled with addiction almost more than anyone. And, you know, again, we can't really compare it. And perhaps I did a disservice trying to do that. Um, but it, it isn't a comparison per se, but there are levels to the game and there are risk factors and severity. And Chris Farley, I don't know if he was really someone that struggled with addiction, like growing up, or in his earlier career, but towards the end of his career, you know, when he got really famous and in the limelight, uh, his addiction got really bad, alcohol, cocaine, even food, opiates. Um, and it was known that it, like in the last couple years of his life, he went to treatment like 17 times. People joked that they should have made a, his own wing at Hazelden because he'd been there. And I'd known people who'd been through treatment with Chris and they talk about how awesome of a guy he was, how you know funny, be really down to earth. But he, you know, he really struggled, and he really wanted to be better. 
right? But he had, he had those internal demons and he, you know, and when you talk to people who knew him well, they said he was really sensitive. He was, you know, insecure. Like he was very sensitive and insecure despite how much people loved him, right? And that's often not enough, right? It's one thing if everyone tells me how much they love me, but if it's not me loving myself, then, you know, it, does, it doesn't matter. Yeah, so we're talking about Chris Farley. That is Happy Chicana's husband, she says. Uh, and so in the last couple of years of his life, he went to treatment like 17 times. You know, and that's crazy to think about. You're like 17 times. But think about it. For all those reasons we talked about at the beginning, all those reasons we talked about, he was going back into those situations after treatment. And I know, you know, again, from people who I'd known who knew him or worked with him, you know, they, a lot of times they tried to get him to, you know, take a break, take time, you know, get sobriety under your belt. And he really, yeah, he was really trying. And I think at one point he got over a year clean and went back and spoke at Hazelden, right? But then getting thrust in that environment and not dealing with those internal demons, right? That's one of the biggest things, doing that deeper work. Because sometimes just getting sober, being in a better environment, being around recovering people can get you pretty far. But with recovery, if you have a really serious addiction, I mean, this is long-term. I mean, this is, you know, this is very much a lifelong battle. And there's not really much room for error. Oh, that's a good one. Whitney Houston. Yeah, she was one of the ones, too, that I would say struggled just about more than anyone. And it did take her in the end. And it was tragic. Again, talk about, you know, some of these folks, Chris Farley, Whitney Houston, that are literally at the top of their game. I mean, Whitney's one of the best, if not the most talented female singers. Chris was probably the, could be the funniest guy that ever existed, right? And sometimes it's lonely at the top. From what I understand with Whitney Houston, and again, I'm not an expert with her, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, I think from a really young age, I think she got involved with Bobby Brown, who was kind of that bad boy, and really early got into some really hard drugs, like crack. I mean, there's no, again, you know, there's kind of joking in recovery stories, like, you can't smoke crack like a gentleman, right? I mean, that's serious business, right? There's no... You know, there's not many people that can control that. You know, when you get that deep into addiction, right, and with her having fame, money, enablers around her, having access. That was actually, we didn't even talk about that. It was just money, you know, having money to buy the shit, right? I don't know how I missed that one. Like, you know, for us average folks who get deep into addiction, it's not easy. It's like you got to scrounge and you make it work and you find the money and whatever way you can, rob, cheat, steal. But when you had a celebrity with buttloads of money, I mean, you could do as many as you want. And that's what, that's one of the reasons a lot of people end up getting sober is they just, you know, they run out of money. And it's not just that, but they that's one of the reasons they feel backed into a corner and they're just like, screw it. They throw their hands up and like, I've had enough of this. However... If that's not an issue, if money is a no object, then it's like it makes it that much harder to stop, 
right? Because a lot of times, too, you just build up a tolerance and then addiction doesn't become fun because you just need more and more to get high. And then eventually it's like, okay, I got to spend $1,000 a day. Okay, that's not feasible. And, you know, with, but that's not an issue, right? That's not, you don't have to worry about tolerance. You just do more and more. And that's why probably a lot of folks relapse. You have access to that. So, yeah, I mean, that is a really big part of it for a lot of these folks. Someone asked about Corey Haim. Well, yeah, he was someone too. We talked about child stars and how difficult that is for them. And, right, you're thrust to the top of the mountain right away and there's nowhere to go but down. And it really takes having a a strong mental perspective and self-actualization and self-realization that most of us are not born with, right? And especially if you're a teenager, how do you navigate? And, And especially folks like Macaulay Culkin and some of these other child stars, Lindsay Lohan, Britney Spears, right? Then the people who are supposed to be there to help you most aren't there, right? They become that enabler as well, or they become that leech too. So, you know, that's why it's that much harder and why there's so much more at risk. And again, so for folks who are just coming in, we're doing a live podcast recording. We're talking about... Um, celebrities, but people of prominence as well, and why that's such a high risk factor for addiction and also some of their stories and what we could learn from it as us regular folks as well. Um, And yeah, so some people are coming in a little critical here, but yeah, I, I think we can relate. And I think some of these things we, you know, you won't be able to relate with. Um, and that goes for a lot of different experiences, right? Like I won't be able to relate to some people who come from certain disadvantaged backgrounds, right? So there's a lot of different groups of risk that we could look at. But I think from a psychological perspective, as being someone who's interested, and I think it's interesting, uh, the psychology and mindset behind it, because you're being put in this situation um, with this level of notoriety and access that almost no one in history has had except for like a pharaoh or a king or Genghis Khan, right? And that is that is interesting of itself, right? That in and of itself is super interesting. So, you know, so we talked about someone like Chris Farley. And so someone said, how do I relate? Well, someone like Chris Farley, like we said, has really deep negative core beliefs about himself. And going back to him, some of the folks in his circle had said, that you all remember one of the famous Chippendale scenes and where it was him and Patrick Swayze, right? And they were, they were competing shirtless to see who could be, right? So who's going to get the Chippendale spot, right? And it was hilarious. It was one of the most iconic scenes. But if you remember at the end of the scene, I think it was Kevin Nealon and I forget who else were the judges. They just like ripped into him, your fat, flubby body, Right. You know, they just ripped him a new one. And Chris, you know, he's taken it and it's part of the show. But apparently from people who know him, I said like, oh, God, like for someone so sensitive, like that really hurt him. Right. And that's something like that really contributed to his negative core beliefs. And that's where it becomes relatable, because so many of the people who I work with who have addiction 
right? They have those kind of, they have pressure on them. Now it may not be pressure to be the best or be a celebrity, but a lot of people came up in, in demanding environments. Um, yeah, so we all love and admire that scene, but apparently that really cut him deep, right? For, especially for someone of how, how sensitive he was. Um, and again, at the end with Chris, you know, so many people tried to help him get sober. Uh-oh. Looks like my computer's going to die. should probably tend to that before that happens. So, so many, so many of his friends, like Adam Sandler, and then there's other folks in addiction. So, like, for example, Tom Arnold was someone who famously struggled with addiction. And I guess for a while he became, he was Chris's sponsor. And he talked about how difficult it was and how hard he tried and how much he tried to get through to Chris. Um, but just in the end, wasn't able to, right? We all get so many chances at recovery. Some of us get none. Some people die or, you know, before they even get, you know, even get into the environment of recovery or go to treatment. And some people go to treatment 17 times in the last year or two of their life. And he had all these chances and you just, you never know. I mean, there's people who've been to treatment more than him that eventually get it. Right. There are people who relapse multiple, multiple, multiple times and they get it. Right. And they eventually get, but when you don't know, you don't know who that is or you don't know how it's like, you know, the cat with nine lives, you don't know how many you get. And so for him, it ended tragically. And I guess the last night, and we'll talk a little bit more about Hazelden as, as a really prominent treatment center here in my backyard. And apparently he went to Hazelden for the last time and he stayed for one day. And I think he left because I, th I think it was a, a second city. If you are familiar with second city, that's where all the famous improv SNL, Bill Murray. I mean, all of them came up at, if you're in, if you're in Chicago, I recommend checking out second city for sure. Um, and I guess they were having a reunion show and you know, he, <clears throat> oops, you know, had a reunion show and he wanted to go back for that, I guess. And it was that night he went out, partied, alcohol, opiates, uh, maybe cocaine. I mean, there was a lot in his system and, and, and that was it for him. And his idol, another one, uh, yep, we're talking about Chris Farley. And Chris's idol was John Belushi. Right. Another one who, I mean, could there anyone could be anyone funnier, right? They were so similar and that was his idol. And you could see how much he, you know, of his art came from him. So yeah, John Belushi and John died at age 33. And Chris didn't want that for himself. Right. But same thing. Uh, he passed away at age 33. Um, just like his hero did, you know, how sad is that? So another one who I talked about, one of my posts was Judy Garland, right? From Wizard of Oz. And we could learn something from her story as well. And we talked about pressure. It was actually interesting. I didn't even realize this, but she grew up in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Um, yeah, so she grew up in my backyard and Deb says SNL had a huge drug culture for years. Deb, are you my Deb? That is, I feel like that's my Deb. 
my friend in, in real life who is an addiction counselor teacher who I've worked with for a while. Um, and yeah, I mean, the 80s and 90s, I mean, the drug culture was out of control. Deb, what's up? That's so funny. Welcome to the show. Uh, so Judy Garland, she grew up in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. And right in my backyard, probably a couple hours away. It's beautiful up there. Like beautiful woods. It's a cool little town. And I guess her parents owned a theater. So she grew up in the entertainment industry. Yes, Deb. Lunch. Deb and I, we like to go get lunch, go get Thai food, hang out, talk about the state of the, of the world here. Um, but so Judy grew up in the entertainment industry and started performing at a young age. And I guess... I don't know. I mean, I don't know how much she struggled with her weight, but there was all this pressure for her to succeed and to be thin. Um, and so I think there's a lot of pressure for her also that she was given drugs at a young age, very young age, um, which was a combo of barbiturates, which are not as commonly prescribed anymore. Because they're so deadly, but the closest thing we have now is benzos, Xanax. So they're a sedative that work on the same receptors. So going up with amphetamines and going down with barbiturates. So she got hooked on this really powerful combo at a very young age. So even when she was 17 years old and filming The Wizard of Oz, she was addicted to these substances. And again, talk about someone who's so freaking talented. And it seems like a lot of these folks, you know, are at the top of their game. They're, they're literally of the most talented that among us. And it seems like that even in and of itself is a risk factor, right? And, you know, so she, I think, died in her 40s, um, but really, and she struggled, you know, and she continued to have success. Um, she struggled with her mental health. And the thing that was most sad was she, apparently, as I looked into it, I mean, she really loved to perform and she loved the audience and she loved making people happy. And in the end, part of that, I think she sacrificed herself a bit instead of taking care of herself, right? She, she gave more of herself than what she should have, right? And in the end, she died, I believe, of an overdose. I thought it was a suicide. I read somewhere, but apparently a lot of folks corrected me, so I felt bad about that. Let's go down the line. You have Elvis, right? Who, again, someone, it doesn't get more famous than him. It, you don't get more notoriety. So again, someone at the top, the top of the top of the mountain, the tip of the spear, right? I mean, it, it, people worshipped him. I mean, he was, liter he was literally a god. Someone asked about Robin Williams. I got him on my list, so I'm going I'm to talk about him and what we could learn from him. And what, what I believe happened. Um, so Elvis, you know, when he passed away, you know, it was always said that he had, like, people worshipped him so much that he just, he almost felt like he was invincible. And, you know, it didn't matter if he was, like, way overweight. It didn't matter. Like, he would go up there and people would worship him. And nobody really, was, like, stopped him and said, like, hey, man, like, you may want to slow down a bit. You may want to get a little healthier. You know, eating the famous, was it like, peanut butter banana sandwiches which I do declare are delicious. Um, but at the end, when he passed away in the toxicology report, um, I mean, he had 
like three or four different opiates and then the barbiturates as well or the benzos i believe it was barbiturates very similar right so you mix two downers but apparently he had a ton and a lot of the times you know with these celebs when they od and they go i mean they usually have like crazy amounts of substances in their system right and we we're talking about that before building this tolerance as a celebrity like some of these folks when you have money you could build a crazy tolerance to drugs because you have access you have means you have money and it's pretty amazing what the human body can tolerate as you get used to it and a lot of the times when people overdose is when they take a much higher amount or level than the dose that they're used to but again we all have our limits and then imagine too when you get to that level and you're using um you know if you're using that many substances imagine trying to get off right and someone said he didn't have a bowel movement for four months and yeah i mean that's the thing with opiates is like you hear crazy stuff like that but that's not uncommon you know that is a side effect of opiates and yeah maybe someone had heard that before where you know maybe that had something to do with it as well but um but yeah you're able to build up these crazy tolerances and use just an immense amount so that you know imagine how hard that is to come off when you're used to taking just absorbent amounts of any substance alcohol coke I mean, think about how expensive something like that is. But if you're a celebrity, you get the best, you know, you get the best of the best and as much as you want, and it's thrown in your face. And then you do get sober, you try to get sober like Chris, but then you're in these environments where you're surrounded by alcohol, women, partying, people throwing themselves at you, admiring you, worshiping you like a god. And that I was looking at that as well. I mean, a lot of celebrities struggle with narcissistic tendencies. And right when, and it's easy to get thrust into that type of mindset where you think about some of the symptoms of narcissism, which is having this inflated sense of self, thinking that you, uh, you know, are better than other people, that you deserve special treatment, right? Well, that sounds like being a celebrity, right? That may not be like narcissistic personality disorder to your deepest core, but that could be like kind of a more superficial, superficial version. Um, but you're stuck in that mindset and that could be really, that could be devastating for trying to get sober. You know, if, you know, you think that you're you know, above the law or, you, you know, the rules don't apply to you. Right. And, and when you think about that to your core, like someone like Elvis or someone else, um, you know, it's amazing what you're able to get away with. Um, you know, another one very similar with Elvis is Michael Jackson. And he wasn't someone who was like always like famously known for being in and out of treatment or whatever. But this is another person, the king of pop. This is someone who was, you know, of the most talented people we've ever come across, right? In entertainment, right? Worshipped. I mean, I, you know, very few people get to that level, right? Like the Beatles, Elvis, Michael Jackson, you know, who are people who are worship like gods, right? And of course, there's a lot of other stuff we could say about him. But at, at the end of the day, right, when you looked at the substances that he was on, yeah, Prince, and I'm going to hit him next. And if you look at the substances, what could we learn from Michael Jackson's case? Well, you had the enabler, right? You had a doctor 
that was on the payroll, right? So he had, so it's a, there's bad incentives. A lot of bad things happen when there's bad incentives. And when you're around celebrities, there's a lot of bad incentives to enable them, right? Because you're, you're getting some of that as well. Like, you know, maybe they thrust your career. Maybe, you know, you're, you're enjoying that like lifestyle in a secondary way, being around him, being around them. Right. And so you have this enabling factor. And for him, he had this doctor, right? When you have means at your disposal, you could get just about anyone to do anything, right? Bad incentives for this doctor to be his personal doctor. And, you know, this guy gave him whatever the hell he wanted, right? And for Michael, I mean, he was on some medications that I've never even heard of people abusing because they're like rarely, they're only using these extreme circumstances. I forget the name of it. Um, you know, but he was on a bunch of opiates and, you know, things for sleeping, you know, so he was on these like, yeah, so he's on, he was abusing meds that are used for like putting people out in surgery. Like that's the main point. And so for some of the people coming in, we're doing a podcast recording. We're talking about uh, the correlation with prominence, celebrity, and addiction, and what we could learn from that. And so we'll stick around at the end, do some Q&A, and I'll answer some regular questions as well. So you could stick around for that. Uh, but if you have any questions uh, about celebs, yeah. And so someone said, yeah, they, Christy says, they killed Michael. And yeah, it's like, where do you place the blame? Well, there's an enabler right there, this doctor, a licensed medical professional. No one in their right mind would give him these things, right? But he had these bad incentives for doing so. And, right, so that, okay, so what would have happened if he and every other doctor refused to do it and he had people around him who were telling him no? Because folks who are celebrities, they're not used to hearing no and they don't respond well to that. So let's get to his counterpart, Prince. All right, we got someone. We got someone who's at the top of his game. And again, one of the most talented musicians out there. Prince is a celebrity among celebrities. Every musician is starstruck by Prince. And I, you know, I have a, a special connection with him because I'm in Minnesota and I've had some really cool opportunities to go to his house and uh, see some private shows. I mean, crazy. Unbel I mean, some of the, some of the, probably some of the, one of the best memories I've ever had uh, was one night uh, going to a private show um, and watching him play in front of like 30 of us, 40 of us. I mean, it was crazy. And Prince wasn't notoriously known for being, you know, an addict, alcoholic, abusing substances. Um, what's going on with my feet here? So that's not something he was necessarily known for. Um, so it's really surprising to hear that he passed away from an overdose. Um, because I don't think much of it. I didn't know. I don't, I don't think much of anyone. Yeah, that's what I was saying too, is Michael, he was never really known for being... You know, not like Charlie Sheen, who's getting DUIs, or Lindsay Lohan, right? Maybe they're playing it under the radar. And I think for them, in some ways, there's like almost a difference with self-medicating. And, and in many ways, all addiction is a form of self-medicating. But really, in the purest form, 
um, when you're, you know, taking those kinds of prescription medications in like a methodical manner. And again, we all have our limit, even when we have tolerance, right? So Prince, you know, I don't know who was prescribing or the doctor or whatever. I mean, I don't know how much came out about that with him. But here's another lesson. Another lesson is pain. So someone's came in, hey, I'm new here. Are you talking about Prince? We're talking about him right now. So I think the lesson to take from Prince was pain. Because I think at the end, you know, Prince was used to literally being the, the king of his castle, the god of his world. There's so many just funny stories about him. You know, some people around him were like, Prince lived in Prince world. And he at seven, it'd be like 4 a.m. And he'd be like, hey, I'd like to hang out with a giraffe. And then he'd be like, Prince, we can't get a giraffe. And then he would like not understand that. He'd be like, what do you mean we can't get a giraffe here? I mean, again, these are these these are these human experiences that almost no one will ever get to. You know, even celebrities, right? Michael, Prince, Elvis, that you get elevated to these levels and you have these human experiences that almost no one does. And that's why I, I find it interesting from that standpoint as well, is how do human beings behave, react when they're in these environments? Um, a lot of them die young, you know, who have these extreme experiences. Yeah, you had no idea. Yeah, you didn't understand that you're... How, what do you mean I can't get a giraffe here? But yeah, if you ever wanted to be entertained, go go, go hear some like celebrities telling Prince stories. I mean, I have a freaking funny Prince story. As a lot of my followers know about that night um, and how crazy that night was. But for him, I think the lesson to take away was pain. Um, I mean, years and years of dancing and jumping on stage Apparently, he had some hip issues and some chronic pain, and so did Michael. And I think I think that was a big contributor to Michael as well, was uh, pain. Was he uh, was in a lot of physical pain. And, I mean, the most common medication for severe physical pain is opiates. And that the physical dependence of opiates is like no other substance. Except for you can maybe compare it to benzos too, uh, where you have this just gnarly physical dependence and it's really difficult to get off of. And you be and that's where you build a tolerance we talked about before, and it gets more and more and more. And you know, with Prince, he just had too many one night and you know they found him dead. And I mean, you should have seen the you know, here in Minneapolis. I mean, there's you know the the impact he had on so many people. I mean, people worshipped him. Um, and it was, yeah, it was just devastating, especially for Minneapolis. You know, we got a lot of cool stuff here. But, um, you know, as far as people that came from Minneapolis, he was the one, right? He was a, he was our crown jewel, so to speak. We thought it was fentanyl. Yeah, it could, yeah, it could have been. You know, and fentanyl is one of the more, most powerful opiates that you could get prescribed to you. So something to learn there as well, right? Then we got the 27 Club, Morrison, Joplin, Cobain, Hendrix, some of the most talented musicians. 
the 27 club, they all died at 27. That's a young age, right? Um, and again, there is a risk factor of being famous young. Um, you know, this lack of maturity, uh, just being, you know, I've used this term quite a bit, but being, you know, thrust into this lifestyle that you're not used to. Um, and then when you're young, you know, and you're immature, right? It's like we all, not everyone per se, but we go through a phase, you know, when we're kids, when we're teens, where we're exploring, we do more risky stuff. We do, you know, take things to extremes. You have more energy. You got more of a sex drive, you know, all that. And you combine that with fame, access to whatever you want, and drugs. You know, I know uh, Joplin, uh, towards the end, uh, heroin. Morrison, I mean, he was into all sorts. Of, I don't know, maybe someone on here knows exactly what happened to him. I remember watching the movie, but you know, by the end, he was like really unhealthy. I know he was drinking a ton. Um, I don't know if it was opiates as well for him. Uh, maybe it was pills and, and booze, but I'm sure someone here knows. Uh, but yeah, we did talk about Corey Haim earlier in the Child Stars. Um, so then you have, yeah, Morrison and then Cobain, right, who was deep into heroin. And, um, you know, again, the, the connection with mental health. And, you know, ended his life. So someone was saying Morrison was drinking. Okay, a couple people said that. Yeah. Deb would know. Deb, have you ever? I don't know. Maybe you're not. I'm trying to think. Yeah, Deb, what were you into growing up? Maybe you know better. But, but yeah, so even just alcohol, right? We think about, you know, but alcohol and pills is a really common, they call it like, yeah, the celebrity killers, that mix. Here's an interesting one for you. Oprah. I didn't even know this. I saw this. But apparently it's like before she was famous, she, she got into a bad relationship and got hooked on crack for a while. For her, maybe it was just kind of like periodic. But, you know, she always struggled with, um, you know, according to her, and again, this is controversial, people may yell at me, but, you know, she always struggled, you know, with using food as coping, you know, by her admission. Um, but, yeah, Oprah, who to thunk? Um, now let's talk about two that I, I talked about in my TikTok um, Robert Downey and Charlie Sheen, both of them had really similar stories. Both of them grew up in Hollywood. Both of them had really famous parents and both of them had a ton of success in their own careers pretty early on. Someone mentioned Drew Barrymore. Yeah, we talked about her earlier. Yeah. I mean, she was, yeah, she was so young. Yeah. 11, 13. Um, yeah, again, that child stardom and being in that environment, especially back then. I mean, it's probably still happening now, but you know, like imagine giving, you know, hearing like Corey Feldman's story, you know, being, you know, given, given drugs by adults. Um, so, yeah, so both Charlie and Downey, they both had a ton of success in their early adulthood. I mean, maybe late teens, early 20s, you know, Charlie Sheen with Platoon. Um, and both of them, like, went whole hog for Robert Downey. He, you know, very famously had got multiple, multiple arrests. 
And it's crazy with him, despite having all that fame, eventually it caught up to him. And even like his fame couldn't save him. Like he was in front of the judge and was facing serious prison time. And I think he did like a, a corrections based treatment. And they're basically like, you're going to like adult, you're going to real prison or you're getting sober. And I think this was somewhere around 2003 that he got sober. And I mean, he famously turned it around really, you know, in the peak of his career with Iron Man. So, I mean, that's, so that's something to take from his story is the power of recovery. And he accredited the support of people around him. He accredited 12 steps as well. So a lot of celebrities get into 12-step based programs too. We'll talk a little bit about treatment stuff. Um, I was worried I wasn't going to have enough material for this, but <laughs> we're just going to keep going. I, have, I, should, I should never worry about talking too much. or, or I should never worry about talking too little. Um, and then with Charlie Sheen, a little bit different, where he continued to struggle. Um, and even, I mean, he was on the biggest TV show at that time, Two and a Half Men. It was the number one show. I mean, he was getting paid just millions upon millions per episode. And think about all the incentive. We were talking about bad incentives. Well, think about all the incentive for people to enable him because he's the cash cow. Right? I mean... That's one of the things with celebrities and why people don't, you know, speak up to them or intervene on them because, you know, a lot of them are reliant on them, right? Lead singers of bands, like, you know, you need them to perform because so many people's livelihoods rely on them. And he ended up just getting booted from the show just because of how outrageous his behavior was. Um, I mean, he was, you know, y'all remember him from that time. He was totally off the rails. I mean, there's that famous interview and talking about tiger blood. And he later said he regretted all that. But, um, you know, but at that time, I mean, he was really struggling with his mental health addiction. And, you know, that he, you know, just like Downey, he got booted off the show. You know, where like eventually the celebrity wasn't enough. Right. And, and he had that consequence. And. You know, he continued to struggle. I mean, he's had a lot of famous arrests and, you know, relationships and domestic, you know, and accusations of domestic violence from a lot of his past romantic partners. Um, you know, and, and not, you can't just blame addiction, but, you know, those things go hand in hand. Um, he ended up getting sober. And, I mean, he, he went to God knows how many treatments throughout the years, you know, another one, countless treatments, but he ended up getting sober like 2017, 2018 or something like that. And I don't know, I, I, I worry a little, I don't know if he's still sober right now. Um, but he was like really in and out at 12 steps and not, and someone's asking if he was non-monogamous. Yeah. Probably most of these people were, were non-monogamous. Um, but yeah, I mean, he had like two porn star girlfriends or something like that. Um, but yeah, so hopefully he's still sober. I'm not sure, but there's something to be learned from them. You know, we have Heath Ledger, you know, again, on top of his career was about to release just one of the most iconic movies of all time. You know, how does it, how does this happen? Right? Another young one, River Phoenix, Joaquin's brother, you know, again, having 
You know, most people who gain success, they do it slowly over time, right? So by the time they really have like the peak of their means, right? They're 40, 50 years old, right? And it, you know, you know, when you're 40, 50 years old, you're, right, you're a little more mature. You've kind of, you've had your party days, not that, you know, people don't struggle at, at that age. But, um, you know, when you're young, when you're 17, 16, 23, 27, like think about Justin Bieber as well. You know, it's madness. I mean, it's, you know, you're, the, you're given the world on a silver platter and it's your oyster. And it's easy to fall into that. And, you know, so he was another one. You know, Ben Affleck was one more recently. I think he went to treatment much more recently and was open about that. He struggled with alcohol on and off. Another one, uh, Gerard Butler. Um, he was famously in recovery. I think he's. I think he still is. But he was really big in, um, you know, the L.A. sober scene. I know a lot of people um, who would run into him at meetings. And again, he he's open about this. I'm not putting the cap out of the bag. Um, but you know, he was someone who, who got a lot of help as well from community based support through 12 steps, um, which is just one route that people go and a lot of people find benefit from. And there's a lot of, a lot of famous folks who are, and we'll talk more about that later, um, about treatment and, and how people get sober as I go through my list. Um, I actually, I'm a huge, I'm a huge Gerard Butler fan because of the movie 300 as a kid. Well, not kid. I was probably 21. Um, my friends and I love the movie 300, right? And so super cool. I was, uh, I was visiting some friends in LA in May and we were on, uh, we're, I think it was like Venice beach. My friend and I, we rented some bikes. It's like one of these like hotels, these like bougie hotels and you could like rent. We rented some bikes and the guy who like rented, he's like, oh, He's like, don't say anything, but sitting over there in the in that in that beach chair on his iPad, he's like, that's Gerard Butler. I'm like, oh, 300. And it, and it's interesting because like you go to L.A. and apparently I saw Britney Spears as well on that trip, but I didn't know. We were walking through the co-op. And my friend's like, oh, did you see that? I'm like, no. He's like, that was Britney. I'm like, what do you mean? I missed it. But you know, you get that. You know, they call it being a star fucker. <laughs> But I mean, but it's intoxicating, right? That celebrity being around that, right? It's there's something intoxicating about that, and that's why, right? That's why there's a lot of that enabling going on. You know, people want to be around you. They want you to like them. They want you know you you can uh, you know siphon off their fame. But yeah, so he's famously sober. Stephen King for a very long time. Cocaine and alcohol. Apparently, John Hamm struggled with alcohol, Mad Men. So maybe it wasn't just in the show. Uh, Matthew Perry was another one who really has famously struggled throughout the years. I think he's doing much better now. I'm not sure. And again, you never know. You know, you, you know, someone said Michael K. Williams just so deed. Yeah, I heard about that. I don't, I'm not super familiar with him. Who, who is he again? Is he an actor? So. Um, yeah, Matthew Perry, really many, many treatments, um, both Brad and Angelina. I think Angelina, when she was younger, in her younger days, but Brad, I think like very recently, I think he 
was open about it, that he, uh, he went to treatment uh, recently for alcohol. So he, he felt like he needed to get some help. And look, some people, they go in and they're like, yeah, I'm a chronic addict, alcoholic. That's how I identify. And, you know, but some, you know, sometimes people, you know, rely too heavily on that negative coping. And sometimes they just need to be pulled out of their environment. We'll see what happens with him. I don't know if he's identifies as being a chronic alcoholic or anything like that. Oh, he was struggling with addiction for years. He played on the wire. Okay. I need to see that. Everyone's like, you have to see that show. It's the best show ever. Like, what do you mean you haven't seen the wire? Well, that's a good question. What's my take on celeb rehab? Oh, David Letterman. Yep. I think, oh, you saw him and you're starstruck. I remember who have I seen? See, I saw them, Gerard and Brittany. Well, I miss Brittany. She walked by me. I remember once I was a kid and I, I saw I saw Michael Jackson walk through a hotel and it was just like everyone went ape shit. Um, and again, I'm not you know we're not doing this for you know calling out celebs. We're not doing this for gossip. This is all very open. And again, this is more about learning and understanding the psychology behind it, you know, and learning from each person's story. So if you've been here, you know, we're taking, trying to take lessons from each one. And again, these folks are really open about it. And a lot of times they're open because they want to, you know, help other people. And again, these are people that we venerate or people that we look up to. And, you know, they could be a, an example for good or bad. Um, another one that we could learn from is Russell Brand. So he's someone who's out in recovery and very open about it. And it's a big part of his life. And he talks about it all the time. Um, and he wrote a really good book about it too. He wrote a, a really good book about being in recovery. And he's another one who really credits 12 step and doing yoga and mindfulness um, so he has some really interesting takes about recovery. So I would recommend his book as well. Um, we can get into that. So someone asked about Dr. Drew in the show. And I have mixed feelings about it. I think, I mean, Dr. Drew is a very smart guy. I mean, I think he's very, like, conservative in his approach. You know, and he's someone who really, like, really deeply believes in the 12 steps. And, I mean, he's someone who worked has worked in very legit treatment centers. So, I mean, and, you know, actually treats people. You know, he's not just the celeb. Um, but, yeah, he, you know, so I think it's tough. I mean, so some of those celebs who were on his show actually, you know, pulled it together, right? I mean, they gave them actual treatment, um, you know, but, you know, what are the ethics of that being shown? I mean, they all agreed. They're adults. They signed up for it. Um, they put it on display, I think. You know, some of them probably did it in some ways to maybe revive their career, get back in the limelight. And, and we talked about that, too, about one of the other risk factors. And again, we could all we could all learn from this, too. You know, another big one are athletes. I didn't even talk about them at all. But think about other folks who are venerated, who get to this pinnacle of their career and then it goes down from there. What if, what if, you know, a lot of, a big risk for athletes is injury. So, oh, and I could talk about wrestlers. Oh, we'll talk about them for sure. This is going to be like a five hour podcast. So I hope you're interested. Um, so, 
know, athletes, right, think about it. Now you have the risk factor we talked about of pain, right, for like Prince, Michael Jackson, people who are on stage performing, having chronic pain, getting hooked to opiates. Well, same thing with athletes. You know, athletes are at very high risk, especially after they're no longer athletes, right? You know, it's like, it's like the joke of like the person who peaked in high school, right? Think about like Al Bundy, if anyone watched that show. Hulk High. Right, his life went downhill after high school, but that was his claim to fame, being a high school football star. All right, let's talk about wrestlers. Um, WWF, WWE wrestlers, and for whatever reason, on TikTok, so I loved wrestling as a kid, loved wrestling, um, and I mean, I haven't, I haven't really watched it for years, but for whatever reason, on TikTok, TikTok noticed that like I love. Like all the wrestling pages, like all of, you know, all of the creators who make, you know, they'll post like documentaries about, you know, the stars of the 90s and the golden era. And I mean, and again, you know, like Deb, you were talking about like SNL, right, in the 80s, 90s. But I think about like wrestling in the 80s and 90s, right? It was that culture too. Partying, cocaine. It's always like Gen X folks were at really high risk too. The Gen Xers went hard. Um, steroids, steroid abuse. So there's like a lot of famous cases where like, you know, wrestlers, even compared to other celebrities were dying at the same, at higher rates than anybody. Like, I mean, you could think of so many people from health complications, um, you know, famously, you know, and then there was, uh, you know, then CTE. Right, that's another right traumatic brain injury. There's so much correlation with addiction and traumatic brain injury. So again, for those of you joining, I'm Evan the Counselor, and we're doing a podcast recording, and my podcast is Evan the Counselor Live. So go subscribe. Um, I'm on Apple, Spotify, um, and you can get this on YouTube as well. And if you subscribe, shoot me an email. The links in my bio, and I'll send you over some free therapy guides for subscribing. Uh, stuff that I do with clients. So back to wrestlers. So you had someone named Chris Benoit, and this was a really famous case. I don't know if this happened like early, I don't know, is this 2010? I may be way off on that. Um, but, I mean, he was a really well-known wrestler, known to be a really nice guy, great dude, whatever, hardworking, consummate professional. But he went off the deep end, and he was having a lot of issues at home and domestic and all this stuff. Um, but then... You know, his family was found dead. I mean, so he killed his child and his wife, and he was having these, like, religious delusions. And when they, you know, did scans on his brain, he had horrible CTE, right? A lot of these guys, too, who've, like, committed murders and stuff like that, right? Another thing to learn. Um, so traumatic brain injury and the risk that that poses as well. Um, but yeah, and so, you know, there's a lot of these, you know, wrestling has been really, con you know, really controversial and there's still controversy about, you know, within wrestling. So a lot of these guys, they, you know, aren't given the same kind of health benefits, although I think for the contractors, I mean, they do have wellness programs and stuff now, uh, same for like fighters and that kind of thing. Um, but you have like really famous cases, you know, like Jake the Snake Roberts, and uh, Scott Hall was a big one. You know, they'd show up later and, you know, they got fired from the WWE. There was a, actually a documentary that just came out. It's called, like, The Dark Side of the Ring. And it, like, actually just got a whole bunch of press. Because they talked about, they call it the flight from hell. 
And there's like a famous story, you know, among wrestlers where these guys, they chartered a plane to Europe for a show, you know, and these guys are all you know, drinking, partying, you know, just living this crazy rock star lifestyle. You know, again, these lifestyles that a lot of these celebs lead are extremes of human experience that very few, if anybody, will ever have. And it comes with risk, you know, these high, high risks. So they had this flight and it, and it literally, they like got in fights, they were drunk, you know, some of them sexually, you know, they sexually harassed the flight attendants and I mean, to the point of like actual sexual assault. And one wrestler just got fired talking about it because he kind of downplayed the sexual assault piece. Thanks for the sub. Shoot me that email. We'll get you some good stuff over. So, you know, so they talked about that sort of this just insane plane ride. And a lot of the, actually a lot of the really well-known guys got fired after it. And, you know, so it's like, you know, you have these stories and, and there's actually really another interesting source, a guy, Scott Hall, also known as Razor Ramon, you know, really big star, you know, WWF, WCW. And that was really the end of his career was after that flight. Apparently they would drug each other and they would with like, you know, as a joke. And I think with him, like he was, you know, maybe it's just an excuse, but you know, it was one of the guys that would always play pranks and he would like roofied one of them. And, you know, they had to wheel him out in a wheelchair and he ended up getting fired and went downhill, right? You lose that fame, you lose your sense of purpose. And, you know, he went into this horrific downward spiral. Another guy, Jake the Snake Roberts, really famously as well, uh, struggled horribly with addiction. And it's interesting, um, I think both of those guys have pulled it together because there's another wrestler named Diamond Dallas Page, DDP. Maybe you've heard of him because he, he you know, for his back pain, started doing yoga, right? I mean, he's a big, tough wrestler, started doing yoga and loved it and it helped him. And he created this, like, and it was on, she was on Shark Tank for it, but he created this DDP yoga, this, like, wellness program. Um, and he actually took in both Jake and Scott and like brought them into his house. I mean, they were both just down and out and he helped both of them get sober, you know, through doing yoga and wellness. And I think those guys are actually doing pretty good now. Um, but they were, you know, horribly struggling with addiction. Uh, there's a couple other guys famously, they'd show up drunk and not be able to walk. And there's videos that you could see of them in these matches where they're you know, showing up drunk. Um, some of them ended up getting sober. Um, so yeah, wrestling, right. So again, traumatic brain injury, here are all the risk factors, traumatic brain injury, chronic pain, living a rock star lifestyle, having enablers, having a ton of money, having access, fame, right? These are all like big risk factors. Um, and again, we may not be able to re relate with the fame part, but I'm really trying to hammer home that we can learn from these experiences like traumatic, you know, a lot of people have TBIs, people have chronic pain that uh, people have, you know, think about it as well. Maybe it's not on the same level, but think about maybe you were at one point in your career where you were at the top of your game, right? I was, and I've heard, you hear this a lot in the program. Oh, I was a well-respected lawyer. I had all this money. And sometimes the addiction itself is what takes you out, right? And then that exacerbates the situation because 
You know, you talking, you're always talking about the glory days. I always say in recovery, there's two kinds of people. There's the ones that had it all and lost it and the ones who never had anything at all. Right. A lot of times the young folks come in, you know, they never had much of anything and then they get sober and then, and then they try to reach their peak. And then sometimes folks who had it all and lost it, like Robert Downey Jr., but then he went back and he, you know, he, he got it all back through recovery. And that's the main thing to take away is how powerful recovery is um, and how important it is for folks. All right. So who else? So we, so we hit the wrestlers. I don't know how I didn't think of them before. Um, talk about Russell Brand and how he helps a lot of people get sober. Someone asked about Robin Williams. And Robin Williams, right, I mean, he famously struggled. I mean, he was another one who went to treatment a whole bunch of times, got sober a whole bunch of times. And I think, like, at the very end, but towards the end, I mean, he was, you know, he found some sense of balance in his life, you know, got sober. And I, apparently at the end, he had uh, his, you know, again, mental health, depression, Right. There's another risk factor right there. And the, again, these things go hand in hand. Sometimes you have the susceptibility and struggle with mental health. Therefore, you're more likely to use or vice versa. You use and then that has a horribly negative impact on your mental health. And they play. Oh, Deb said, Louis, Deb, you know all this stuff. Yeah, Louis by me he had this like chronic degenerative condition where he was going to slowly lose basic functions. And I think that became overwhelming. And I think at the end, that's why I believe, um, I believe he, he committed suicide, right? Um, wasn't an accidental overdose or anything, um, which leads us to, so here's another powerful lesson to take Philip Seymour Hoffman. So in his younger years, apparently, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but Philip Seymour Hoffman, he got sober, young, I don't know, his 20s, 30s, I'm not sure what it was. But I know I know that he had a lot of time sober. And he, you know, maybe had like 15, 20 years. I mean, he, he totally turned it around. So it was really unexpected because he relapsed, right? And just like a lot of the people who overdose when they relapse, right? you become like you're used to a certain level of the substance. Uh, and a lot of times, one of the main reasons people overdose is they take the same amount that they took before, or you don't know what you're getting. And nowadays, everything is pretty much laced with fentanyl, which is more powerful. And that's why you have a huge spike in these overdoses um, is because you really don't know what you're getting. So that's a lesson with Philip Seymour Hoffman is he, you know, had all this time sober and you're still susceptible. And when you go back, that's a huge risk factor, relapsing after that much time. So that's what made it all the more sad. You have someone like Anthony Bourdain. And that's a complicated case as well because, you know, you he, he was someone who famously, when he was young, he struggled with addiction, with heroin. And he got off... Um, you know, he quit heroin at a pretty young age, really turned his life around, became well-known, traveling, but he still lived like a pretty hard lifestyle, right? So it was always kind of controversial where it's like, you know, is Ant you know, is Anthony Bourdain an alcoholic? He's always drinking in the shows. I mean, he's a heavy drinker. 
But, I mean, he wasn't falling off the rails or anything. He was just kind of, you know, again, now you have two things. You have an entertainer and someone in the service industry. Um, so there's, you know, so growing up in the service industry, right, you get, you know, there's kind of this pseudo rock star lifestyle that they lead with a lot of substances and the culture, right, just like the entertainment culture, the culinary culture. Um, and at the end, right, for him, I think it was, it was, it appeared to be mental health, right? So just because you have it all doesn't make you immune. And sometimes, as we're seeing here, it's more of a risk factor when you have it all because money and fame does not buy happiness, right? It's nice when you go from this level up to this level of fame, right? It's going up. That feels good. But then again, no matter where you're at, there you go and you bring yourself with you. And you acclimate, you get acclimated and it becomes the new normal, good or bad. So, you know, for him, you know, a lot of these folks struggle with, you know, it's depression, you know, it's a serious mental illness. You know, depression is so common. And we'll talk a little bit about money in a bit. There's some, there's some interesting places we could go with that. Um, someone mentioned Nikki six. I had him on my list. I remember I, I was in treatment and I don't know why I did this, but I, I, I got a hold of his book, right? It was, I think it was called the heroin diaries. And Oh my God. I mean, I think they're great to talk about. It's like Motley crew because like nobody partied hard, like harder than Motley crew. They had that Netflix special and it's like so entertaining because it was just so absurd. I mean, these young guys on top of their game, good looking, just wild, you know, and they were, you know, gods to people, right? Money, cars, women. Um, you know, Vince Neil, the lead singer, right? He had another musician in his car and drunk as hell. I think, yeah, he went to jail for a while because he, they've gotten a drunk driving accident in his Lambo or Ferrari or whatever it was some sports car and killed his friend. He had to live, he's had to live with that his whole life and he struggled with addiction. So that's Nikki Six. Right, we got Lindsay Lohan. I think for her, she always said that she struggled most with alcohol, right? And that's another one, a child star. And I guess she was, she said too, that she was like very straight edge for you know, a long time as a kid and you know, getting you know, thrust into that position of, of stardom uh, getting in that lifestyle and her father, you know, a lot of issues with her dad. I think he just got arrested again for doing something called body brokering, right? Where it's like you get paid to get people into treatment, you know? So, you know, he was always into some sketchy stuff. Um, but, you know, I think she would try to stay away from it because of the experience of her dad, but she, you know, fell victim to, you know, with mental health. Um, so I'm not sure. I mean, she seems even better. And I mean, she's kind of living in the Middle East or I don't know what the heck's going on with her, but, um, and who else do I got on here? We got Richard Pryor, right? Another one who is, you know, can you get more talented than that? Right. Another one who's just at the peak of their fame. And, you know, he famously had that incident where he burned his face freebasing and, you know, at the end, I mean, he, he had, you know, MS and health complications. And sometimes, I mean, I don't know, I, I think those things can be correlated when you abuse drugs throughout your life, 
you know, you're more susceptible to uh, having, you know, physical health consequences. For him, I can't say for sure, but he really, he really struggled. So that's my list. Wow, we, we hit them all. Um, not, not all. Some, some of you have put some other folks in here, some that I don't know as much about. But again, this is all, you know, these are all, you know, this isn't the tabloids, this isn't gossip. You know, this is all very public, and these are things that they've spoken out about. And again, just because they're celebrities, right, there are some things that we can't relate to. Uh, that level of fame, stardom, that kind of environment, having that kind of money, access. Uh, but we can relate to a lot of the other things, traumatic brain injuries, you know, having something and losing it, mental health, chronic pain. Right? These are things that many of us can relate to. All right, so we're going to switch gears a little bit. We're still going. Oh man, I thought I, don't, I wasn't sure if I'd have enough material. Um, and again, so it was a good time to mention we are, for those coming in, we're filming a podcast, recording a podcast. This will be on YouTube, this will be on Spotify, Apple, on all the podcast catchers. It's called Evan the Counselor Live. So again, if you go subscribe um, to my podcast, to my YouTube, Insta, and then shoot me an email and I'll get you over some free therapy guides and part of the book that I'm writing. So I'll send that over for free as a thank you for subscribing. And this will be released probably within a week. And I got a new podcast, again, coming out tomorrow, so stay tuned for that. Um, that one is with Dr. Patrick Kennedy, and we talk all about ADHD. So we're talking about all sorts of topics, addiction, mental health. Thanks, Deb. Everyone listen to Deb. She, said she subscribed, so be like Deb. Deb, shoot me an email. I'll send you some of that stuff over. Maybe you find it interesting. Jen Margot is back, our favorite Jen Margot. All right, so let's talk about some other forms of prominence. Again, people, it, addiction crosses all barriers, races, socioeconomic, um, but it appears that folks who have these like higher levels of prominence, people who have access, people who have resources are at a higher risk. I mean, you know, one statistic is, you know, it's like white middle-aged men um, have some of the highest suicide rates, like three times, 70, it's like 70% of suicides, right? And you think about that, right? It's like middle age, or you're going to the peak of your career, or maybe you, ha you had it all. Uh, a lot of risk factors are like divorce, lawsuits, um, having money and then losing it. Um, you know, so there, you know, and so you think like a white guy in America, right, having the most privilege just based on your demographic and not all, you know, you know there are, are plenty of underprivileged folks that are white. Um, but, you know, still, like as a general demographic, they still have some of the highest rates of mental health suicide. 
So here's another interesting group that are that are one of the highest risk groups. And this is interesting. It's children of prominent people, right? Celebrities, kids, really rich kids, right? They have some of the highest rates of addiction. I could attest to that with, you know, some of the people who I've worked with and treated. And they, you know, like there's just like a whole industry marketed to them. And I want to bring up one story. And some of you remember this. Who who here remembers the affluenza kid? Who remembers that affluenza, affluence, right? So it's this like teenage kid. I'm like, yeah, I won't place judgment on him or whatever. But you know, he I don't know if he, I mean he had a bit of a rap sheet or something. But I, all I know is that he. I believe gotten a drunk driving and and ended up killing someone. Correct me if I'm wrong. And I think like his parents like tried to get him out of it and they sent him to like Mexico and like crazy stuff. But eventually he's in front of the judge and he, he literally, literally the lawyer, I'm pretty sure literally said he suffers from affluenza. And it was interesting. Later I read an article and it was, a, it was written by a guy who was like this kid who um, grew up prominent and struggled with addiction. And rehabs are filled with these kids. Celebrities kids. You know, I got a, a friend who works out in L.A. and, you know, at a teenage center. And, you know, a lot of celebrities kids. And why? Okay, so what are the risk factors there? One, environment. Someone said entitlement. Yeah. Just like celebrities. Resources. Privilege. Right, having access, having money, being able to buy substances, having access to the substances, you know, and some of those kids too, they have people leeching off their fame, right? Um, you know, and money. I mean, there's some of these kids, and you know, and I've, I, you know, being kind of in this world, you know, I hear a lot of these stories, and I have a lot of friends, and I've done it too, who've done these like sober companion gigs, and I was going to talk about this, where literally they will hire people like me to go for, you know, weeks, months at a time. And again, I've had a lot of friends who have done this and with prominent people or their kids and they'll do, they'll be their sober companion, right? Talk about privilege, being able to afford that, right? Shit, we make 500, a thousand, up to $2,000 a day doing this kind of work. And you know, and these were a lot of the kids and, you know, I've heard stories of a lot of them and it's in some ways sad, right? I mean, it's easy to look at them and not have any compassion. They're just spoiled little shits, right? And they, it's easy to just not feel compassion, especially if they're acting like a little asshole, but you know, they suffer, you know, they really suffer with mental health. They're not happy. You know, it doesn't matter if you're rich. None of it matters if you're not happy. Um, you know, a lot of overdose suicides, I've known these kids and, and a lot of them too, they have, you know, these fair weather friends, right? Where people, they like them for their money. They take advantage of them for their money. They throw parties, they throw whatever, right? Come to my mansion. I grew up with some of the kids like this, right? And I grew up in a pretty, you know, all things considered fortunate situation. You know, we weren't like filthy rich or anything. Um, but some of the people around me were, you know, I grew up with some kids 
um, not like not even like my best friends or anything, but there'd be these kids, right? They'd throw parties at their mansions, and and you'd kind of see that, like these kids who had a ton of money, like they were automatically cool, right? And you know that sets you up for this unrealistic view of the world, um, and you may not have a lot of the, you know, you know some of the issues otherwise, but um, you know that really can have an impact on the way you think, and you know, and not having some of those necessary things like true close connections, and a lot of times too, like you know, you think, oh yeah, okay, and my dad is, you know, owns you know like Paris Hilton, my dad owns you know. A lot of times these folks don't have great relationships with their parents, right? You may be better off like mentally just being middle class and having a good relationship with your parents and, you know, living a more down to earth lifestyle versus, you know, having a celebrity parent, which is really tough. And a lot of times these, and one thing I notice with these kids, one of the reasons why they really struggle is because they're living in the limelight of someone else and they have very high expectations. So think about that. Right. Think about what is expected of you. And a lot of times parents don't put this pressure on their kids per se. They're not like, hey, I'm famous. You need to be rich and famous like me. A lot of times the parents I found are like, look, just carve your own path. You know, it's like kind of like Billy Madison. Right. You grow up and you're, you know, your dad owns hotels and you, know, you live this crazy lifestyle. You know, but eventually Billy became a teacher, right? And, and you know, and his dad in the movie, it's just a movie, it just comes to mind as an example, you know, but his dad just wanted him to quit being a screw up, you know, quote, to his quote. Um, and, you know, whether it's taking over the family business, being famous, you know, whatever. Um, but he found his own path wanting to be a teacher, Right. And, and so a lot of times the parents don't put the pressure, but you feel the pressure because that's that's the expectation. If I don't live up to be like dad or mom, then I'm a failure. Right. Because that's what my idea of success is. So these kids feel a lot of pressure, whether it's direct. Sometimes it is direct from their parents. Um, you know, sometimes their parents are famous, they're rich, they're CEOs, they're flying all over They're you know, they're workaholics, they don't, you know, and they don't have that connection. You know, a lot of times these kids too, they don't have any structure, they don't have any boundaries, they don't have any, they don't have the same kind of rules. As I, It's really shitty parenting. They grow up with really shitty parenting often. Sometimes they don't. Um, sometimes the parents, just because they're rich, famous, prominent, it doesn't mean they're not good parents, but... Um, you know, there's all these other risk factors, but that's often one of them is parents aren't around. And yeah. So affluenza. And I was saying that article, so this dude wrote an article and he was, and he talked about the affluenza kid and he tried to bring a little sympathy to it because he said, I was that kid. And this guy, he went and he actually started a treatment center for these kids because he's like, look, they kind of have these special needs, you know, that they may not get it at like another treatment um, where there's really specific things that they need to work on um, because it is in many ways a unique experience. And that'll transition us into celebrities, right, and the treatments they go to. And someone asked our, our favorite psych doc of TikTok, 
He's an awesome psychiatrist on here. He asked earlier about what I thought about some of these celebrity treatments. And, you know, it's interesting. So a lot of these celebs we talked about go to treatment often multiple times, often multiple of multiples, right? They go to treatment a whole bunch. And so that, you know, they go to these nice places, Betty Ford, Hazelden, um, and you know, he's like, are these legit? And I would say often yes, right? He's, or yes, are they evidence-based? And often yes, right? So somewhere like Hazelden is in my backyard. And it's a treatment center I recommend people go to. You don't have to necessarily be rich, but you have to be rich or have good insurance, right? I mean, you could be like a, you know, in a union or something and have good insurance and go. So it's not necessarily all people of like great prominence per se, but I mean, they're a really clinically sound program. You know, a lot of people have gone sober, and Hazelden is actually like one of the first rehab treatments of all time. I mean, you know, Deb's from around here. She's an addiction counselor and professor, our favorite Deb. And, you know, so she was saying Hazelden's awesome. And, yeah, so, I mean, I recommend people go there. So a lot of slubs have gone there. Folks that we talked about, Robin Williams, they joke that Chris Farley should have his own wing of the treatment back in the day. Um, so Chris Farley was so pretty much like, Probably half the celebs on there. I wouldn't be surprised if they went to Hazelden. And now they're merged with Betty Ford. And that was a big one in Palm Springs, a lot of them. So these places are legit. Um, some are not. I mean, some of them are like these really like niche boutique type treatments where you there's like seven of you and you get massages. And, you know, a lot of these ones in Malibu. Look, I mean, they hire legit clinicians and stuff. But sometimes you wonder like, you know, if you're being isolated and in, in these, you know, small pockets of, you know, lap of luxury type treatments, you know, is that really, you know, how helpful is that going to be? And for a lot of them, it's not. But again, it doesn't, it's not often the treatment because a lot of times the celebs will go, they'll be like, yeah, it was a great experience. I got clean. I worked on a lot of my trauma and issues. And maybe sometimes that is important to go somewhere that understands the specific needs that we were talking about about, you know, being a celebrity and the risk factors and just the craziness of the lifestyle that, that you live and the environment that you're in, right? And so a lot of times, you know, celebs or people, you know, they benefit from having role models, you know, be one thing if I'm working with them or something, but, you know, there's only so much I could personally relate with. Um, you know, so having other people who have been in their position, who have reached heights of prominence and struggled, right? There's a lot of those examples and there's a lot of people that are sober. Um, we talked about some of them in the list. Some are sober, some still struggle, some aren't alive. Um, so yeah, so the, you know, that's where... You know, so sometimes the treatment is kind of bullshitty and sometimes it's, it's good sound treatment, but it doesn't matter if you're not going back to a, an environment that's conducive for recovery, right? So you can go to the best treatment for six months and get out and you go back to parties and you're in that industry. You have the enablers, you have the access, the resources, the party, the women, you know, whatever. And it doesn't matter how good the treatment is. Um, you know, it's it, recovery is long-term, right? Treatment is a great tool, 
uh, especially at the beginning when it's really hard. As someone mentioned, sober living. Yeah, and then you have these like, you know, beautiful in Malibu, sober living places that are thousands of dollars a day, a month, whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, you see, you have that. And sometimes they're good environments. Sometimes, you know, there's sometimes there's more enabling going on. Not, not all of them are the most ethical places. So sometimes there's enabling going on there too. Um, yeah, so another person I wanted, a couple of people I wanted to mention, you know, in the recovery community, um, uh, someone, yeah, maybe a lot of y'all have heard, so he's another one of our Minnesota guys, uh, but Andrew Zimmern, um, and he, you know, similar, you know, pretty similar to Anthony Bourdain, grew up in the East Coast, New York, you know, had some of his own prominence in like the culinary industry. Um, and then in the nineties, you know, crashed and burned, lost it all like heroin addiction, homelessness, you know, despite coming from some prominence, but also had a, you know, a lot of childhood trauma. And this is stuff that he's open to open with talking about. And, um, yeah. And so, you know, so he lives in Minnesota, but he came here to go to Hazel and actually he went in, he was, he was with Chris Farley and apparently he told me that he um, actually lived in the same building as Chris Farley in New York. He like lived down from him and I guess reconnected in treatment. Um, but they, you know, getting sober on the same time. So Andrew got sober in the 90s and he's super open about his recovery. He even came to speak at one of the uh, uh, aftercare facilities that I worked at. He agreed to come and he's got an amazing story and does a lot in the recovery community is still really active in the recovery community. And Deb said he's a supporter of the Step Up program here, which is um, one of the first college programs that had a college recovery program. So helping, and uh, I actually went through it myself, believe it or not. Um, so he's got a really good story. So I'd recommend go looking that up. It's, it's really inspiring and everything he's accomplished since, um, since he got sober and he accredits everything he has. I mean, there's no, I mean, he went from basically being homeless to, you know, where he's at today, syndicated show, owns multiple restaurants. I mean, highly respected in his field. So it's been cool that I've been able to get to know him a little bit. Um, another one I wanted to talk about is Dak Shepard. I'm sure many of you know of him. My famous in the early 2000s, you know, he came to Hollywood and was on the show Punked and did a lot of comedy and then, um, then, and then very famously got married to Kristen Bell, um, you know, and, and everyone loves their relationship, but Dax, um, struggle with addiction as well. Same, kind of fell into the same traps as all these other folks. And right now, he actually has one of the probably top-rated podcasts, and I love it. I'd recommend it, called Armchair Expert. That one is uh, just on Spotify now. He's one of those guys that got a Spotify deal, like a Joe Rogan. Um, but Dax, so this he has a really interesting story, and this is, uh, and I bring this up because this is one to learn from as well. So Dax got sober, and he had. I want to say like 17 years. It was something like that, 17 years. 
So he was sober for 17 years. And last year, right, and he would always, I mean, he was very open about it, kind of like Andrew would always talk about it, would always talk about 12-step programs and how much they helped him. So always talking about his recovery, right, on his podcast. And, and then one day I woke up and I saw on my, um, saw on my notifications that a new episode came out. Ooh, nice, new episode of Armchair Expert. But I listened to it and it was, wasn't like any of the other episodes. So he was with his counterpart, Monica, who's his best friend and who nannied for his kids and all this. Um, and basically he told the story that he had recently relapsed. So he kind of came out to everyone and said, after 17 years, I relapsed. And which is interesting. And you should hear the episode. It's amazing because he tells the story and then you hear about it from his perspective and then Monica's perspective, his best friend, and, you know, hearing about it, like his wife and how, and how she reacted. And, you know, so what happened was he had all these injuries from like, you know, he likes to ride motorcycles and, you know, had these injuries. And I mean, I think he was alcohol, Coke or something, but then got into opiates. He, um, and this is interesting because this is how delicate recovery is. Sometimes it's these little decisions that you make that seem innocuous at the time. They don't seem to mean that much. And it sets you up. It sets up a series of events. And I, I mean, I've heard this story and many stories like it time and time again, where you convince yourself that it's okay. So he convinced himself it was okay to take opiates and maybe he needed it. So maybe he needed opiates, but he started taking more. And then he noticed he started getting excited to take them. And then he started hiding it. And so it, it escalated to eventually the point where he was taking way more than prescribed. And it just turned into a full-blown relapse. And it just happened. Like He didn't really have any intention. He was super into recovery. But he was talking about it. It was really interesting to hear from his perspective about how he lied about it, um, deceived people. I mean, it's a really typical story. So I would definitely who, – oh, who's that? Someone said David Foster Wallace unfortunately ended his life. Who, who is he again? But yeah, so I mean, I would really recommend to go, you can look it up, go find that episode. Um, if you want to hear a great story with addiction, it was really, I mean, even for me, I mean, I hear these stories all the time, honestly. It's hard to surprise me. It's hard to get me that interested. I mean, I do this shit all the time. But that, I, I really thought that was eye opening and I really in, in, enjoyed hearing that. Not that he relapsed, but I think it was super interesting. Um, you know, and heartwarming in many ways, too. All right, so what else on my list here? Um, let's talk about money. Right? I mean, we talked about how, you know, people of prominence, of resources, celebrities, you know, they're able, it, you know, the money itself enables their addiction, Right. You know, look, plenty of people maintain addiction with no money. They find a way they're resourceful. They make it work. And we talked about how money doesn't buy happiness and any rich people tell you 
will tell you this, but money doesn't mean nothing. The best money could do is shield is is really like shield you from some of the the woes that life has to offer, right? Being able to have your basic needs met and to remove the stress of money itself. That, I mean, that's what that's what money could do for you. And that's not nothing. That's not insignificant, right? To be able to make sure you always have a meal, to make, to, you know, that you have health insurance, that you're able to go on some vacations, that you could, you know, buy a, get a car that you want. I mean, there's, you know, it's, there's these luxuries that do make life better, but that's, but that's about as good as it can get. I mean, there's some studies that shows like seventy, eighty thousand dollars. You know, it's like once you start getting above that number, then it act, you actually have like an inverse correlation, meaning that like having more money over a certain point becomes more of a risk factor for not being happy or healthy. Um, I mean, again, so it's food, water, shelter, healthcare, clothing, right? And then you know, and then some of the luxuries are nice too. Um, you know, and and mainly being able to just not have to worry about money. I mean, that's the that's the biggest. That's the biggest thing right there. So I, I have an example. And we didn't talk a lot about trauma. We, we touched on it a little bit. But obviously, it's super important as we're learning this more and more where a lot of these folks, right, who are prominent, you know, even the prominent kids have trauma, you know, maybe they their home life maybe wasn't great. You know, having a narcissistic, prominent parent who is abusive, right? There's that doesn't shield you from abuse. And you know, so having these traumatic upbringings is a, is a really big risk factor. And so, Deb, if you're still here, you're still here. You are. So maybe it'll be interesting to hear what you have to say about this, and. I like I hesitate to do it in some ways, but I th I think it's again an interesting case study, so to speak. So here in Minnesota, you know, we have a handful of Native American tribes, and um, the two main ones we have are what would be uh, comes with Ashkenabe or Ojibwe. And then you have uh, Dakota um, in Minnesota. And some of the tribes, right, were able to procure casinos, right? And that happened around the country. You have examples of this. And there's one tribe here in, there's a, a band of the Dakota, of the Sioux. Yeah, so Dakota also, no, more commonly known as Sioux, but I don't, they don't like to go by that. Well, actually, they call themselves Midwakatan Sioux. Um, but yeah, so there's one band called the Midwakatan Sioux tribe. And they were really small, right? They were a, I mean, you know, just like you know, the, the poorest zip codes in the country, some of the most destitute are Native American reservations. So they, you know, lived on a reservation in Shakopee, Minnesota, um, and it's not far from the Twin Cities, right? It's like 20, 30 minutes from, you know, the Twin Cities here. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, they were just like any other native tribe. They were very 
you know, poor, you know, all, all the issues that come from living on a res and, you know, get into the historical trauma and everything there. But, um, but the main point was, so they, at some point, I don't know if it was the seventies, eighties, sixties, I don't know exactly when it was, but they, you know, like many others took advantage of the law getting around the gambling laws on native land and they opened a casino and it is massive. Like it is a massive casino. It's called mystic Lake. I've never actually been there. Um, but yeah, I mean, so they built this casino and I had this professor. Um, I actually took a couple of native American history courses as electives I had this awesome professor, his name was Eric Buffalohead, shout out to him at Augsburg College. Um, but I learned a lot from him and, you know, history of like contemporary native issues and water and you know, fishing rights and, you know, just broken treaties. And so you learn about all these things, right? And, and another big one, like the boarding schools. So just like, you know, trauma upon trauma upon trauma. And he always, he said like, he was talking about the, Midwakanton tribe, and he said, you know, there's a few things that they had going for him there was that, you know, they, they were able to open this casino, and it so happened to be located near a whole bunch of suckers, and that's us here in the Twin Cities, right? So there's other casinos, but this one happens to be located near a large population of people. So the casino started making a lot of money, and when I say a lot of money, I mean a lot of money, and when that happened, you know, the tribe, um, you know, started, you, you, you get, if you are a tribe member, you get dividends. Um, and, you know, it becomes harder and harder to get in the tribe for that reason. It's like, you know, the people, you know, and then if you're like a half tribe member, you know, you get half and, you know, it divides up. Um, but, you know, so, you know, so these folks live close by here. And... I think the rule is you have to live on the reservation in order to get the stipend. So, so they have, you know, their reservation and these folks, a lot of them, especially the full tribes members, they make a crazy amount of money. Like don't quote me on this, but it's something on this level of ridiculous. I mean, it could be upwards of like a hundred thousand dollars a month. Like, even if it was like $10,000 a month, I mean, wouldn't that be nice, right? I mean, so they, you know, so this small band of tribe, right? So they have this casino, and all of a sudden, we talk about this a lot. I won't get into it, like, too politically. But from a psychological perspective, right, you would think, right, that, okay, here's this population that sells trauma, you know, systemic racism and you know every issue you could think of and you would think okay now you have all this money right we should probably you know it's probably some of these problems will go away right because it's fixing a lot of the issues which ended up being in these destitute situations so, so now we don't have that anymore so shouldn't things have gotten better i don't know you know i don't know the exact statistics on it but you know from those of us who work in the field here right we come across these folks quite a lot because again just like being a celebrity this is one of those human experiences and i've always said that they should i fuck maybe i would do it they wouldn't be happy about it and you know 
they won't probably be happy about me talking about this, but um, you know, this is a human experiment of let's take a, a group of people with immense amounts of historical trauma that have led to drug abuse and mental health, like just everything you can imagine. And let's just throw a shitload of money on the, you know, on the population. And this has led to some significant issues of its own, right? Just like the kids of affluenza, right? They're starting to see these problems, right? Because, you know, you can't just throw a bunch of wealth onto someone who's, I'll just say it it can be an issue, um, you know, to all of a sudden, right? It's just like lottery winners, right? It's like, think about it. It's like the curse of winning the lottery. Now add that with historical trauma, and that's essentially what you have here. And a lot of these folks, you know, are in really bad conditions, not literally because they all live in like, I don't want to say all, whatever, but it's known that in their community, right, if you're living there, like they have nice houses, nice cars, right? A lot of them, they're living like rock stars. You know, think about it. We talked about structure, environment. A lot of folks, they don't have to work. I mean, there's a lot of drug abuse. So, I mean, very high amount of them. And they just go and they throw money at it. They send them to treatment. You know, they have case managers. They have, you know, and they have a lot of services. I mean, they do a lot of good with the money. They donate it. They, you know, they provide certain, they try to help. I mean, it's kind of like the wrestlers we were talking about earlier, where it's like, all right, oh, they're sick again. Let's just throw them into treatment. Hope that works. Um but sometimes, you know, the money could be a curse. And that's what I've seen here, you know, with some of those folks who struggle. And they have a lot of those same issues as celebrities and celebrities' kids and people of affluence. Um, and, it's, and it's really sad. Um, and I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure many people, it's, it's health and they have good lives. I mean, I don't know, but I just know for sure that a lot of people there struggle and there's a ton of a ton of issues. So again, I think the bottom line at the end of it is, you know, money does not buy happiness. It's not nothing. But sometimes uh, it again, it there's a point of diminishing returns and it can be a curse. Again, yeah, that situation very very similar to the lotto winners who just come across a bunch of money. And a lot of times too the folks who are winning the lotto, a lot of times the people who buy lotto tickets are people who, you know, don't come from backgrounds of money. A lot of these folks don't know how to manage money, right? And, and you see that too with like rappers, um, you know, certain athletes. I'm not just saying just from a racial standpoint, you know, folks coming from rural areas, whatever, you know, who come from these cultures where they're, you know, cultures, you know, with a lot of poverty. And then all of a sudden they get a bunch of money, right? And they didn't learn. They didn't, you know, they don't know accounts. And then again, you have people taking advantage of you. And that's what you're seeing a lot as well with those, like with folks who I've worked with, or I've known people who've worked with them who, you know, a lot of people then are taking advantage of them because they're, you know, they have all this money. They could, you know, again, a hundred thousand dollars a month. Don't have to work, you know, so many folks lose all concept of time because they don't work, they party all night, just do whatever they want, order whatever they want, you know, and it's, again, it, it, it can become a curse. So 
I don't know. Well, I think that's all I really have. I'll stick around for a little bit. So let's do some Q&A. Let's see what people are saying. I've been chiming in a little bit. So let's see what we got. So people said a lot of alcoholics in the service. And yeah, that was something, you know, I did a whole thing about, and this kind of came from that a little bit. We talked about uh, folks who have jobs that predispose them. You know, there's cultures within the jobs, the conditions, lawyers, miners, construction workers, entertainment, first responders. And military was a big one. I know, Leon, I've been drinking a lot of water. I'm almost, I'm almost out. Leon here always reminds me to drink water. But when I did that video, and that video, was, you know, that two-part video is probably, I think, the second most viewed of any video I did. It got probably a total of like 14 million. I mean, a crazy number. So I got a lot of feedback on it. And one of the things that people said is military. You know, military, how come they, so they weren't actually on the list. And I thought about it. I'm like, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I know how high risk it is being the military. And what it, and when I looked into it a little bit deeper, folks in the military, I was actually talking to some folks in the military over the weekend. We actually talked about this. It was interesting because uh, both of them were in recovery and both got kicked out of them. <laughs> both got kicked out. So here's the thing is when you're in the military, you're not allowed to use drugs. It's very frowned upon, and if you get caught, you're screwed. Like, they they kick you out. And so, in jobs where you get drug tested, that's why I think numbers in, like, truck drivers of drug abuse have gone down. Because you have, like, the Department of Transportation, who's extremely, you know, on top of that. They don't mess around. Just, like, folks who are in, um, you know, folks who are in... Uh, impaired professional programs, like in my field, like in the healthcare field, like the recovery rates are better because it's tied to their job. So folks in the military, I, I, and someone I was talking to yesterday said, yeah, you know, you could drink. They don't really care as much about that. But if you drink and do something stupid, I mean, you get in a lot of trouble. So you have heightened rates of alcohol use and active duty. However, where it gets dicey where those numbers go way up would be veterans and especially combat veterans so if you're comparing like combat veterans and you consider that in and of itself a job um then yeah that would be number one however this is i think that's why it's not on the list is because when you get out of the job so yeah i mean i i got that question hundreds of times so that's a really good question um so like I talk about hypervigilance, all right? So yeah, we'll switch gears a little bit. So hypervigilance, so think about that, right? Think about survival. Think about us, I would say, being on the savanna, right? You got to be hypervigilant because, you know, we're not, we are top of the food chain, but not in a hand-to-hand -hand combat situation. You know, if I got a gun, you know, then I'm, I'm probably pretty good. You know, or even a bow and arrow, or I got a group of us with spears. Um, but if I'm just out on my own, right, pack of wolves, a bear, a tiger, right, there's all sorts of danger. So I have to be hyper vigilant. That's built into us. The survival is built into us, right? Um, so even though I have less to worry about, 
being in modern society, there's still dangers, right? Let's say I'm driving a car and I'm like going real fast on the highway or something. Like I'm going to be a little more hyper vigilant because I literally take my wheel and go, eh, you know, like that could be really bad. Yeah, so we're we're going to get to the not good part. <laughs> Can we talk about when it's not good? Yes, we're going to get there, right? So, you know, so this, just like anything else, like anxiety, right? We need anxiety. If we had no anxiety, we could be, we'd be in trouble. Now, think about a lot of the folks who struggle with hypervigilance or maybe those with anxiety or folks with PTSD, right? So having a traumatic experience, just like if you're on the savannah and you got attacked by a tiger, right? You're going to be much more hypervigilant. Right? You're, when you're walking through the jungle, you're going to think twice about probably even doing that. And so the same goes when you've experienced trauma. Right? You've experienced a maybe it's a, literally a tiger attack. That's traumatic, but probably not. Um, you know, whatever that is, sexual assault, car accident. And there's a lot of different traumas that you could have where one of the symptoms of PTSD is hypervigilance. So that's when it's not good. And, and someone was talking about anxiety, someone had a question about it, and I would put this in the, in the same, um, you know, in, in the same category as having, because we need anxiety, but clinical anxiety, having anxiety disorder, that's more characterized by having fear that is disproportionate to the actual potential for harm. So that'd be like me walking down the street of Minnesota and being afraid that a tiger is going to attack me. We, for those of you who don't know, maybe you're not experts in geography or ecology. We don't have tigers in Minnesota. We have moose, black bears, some wolves, eagles. And a mountain lion every once in a while may cross the border but um, we don't have a tiger. Uh, but let's say I got attacked by a tiger in India, and now, like when I was outside and it was dark, now I'm walking outside and it's dark, and I'm like, I'm literally afraid of a tiger attack. Even though logically I know I'm probably not gonna get attacked by a tiger, I still have that hypervigilance, right? So that's part of that anxiety, and that's one of the things we do in trauma therapy, is looking at those traumatic triggers and trying to desensitize people to them. And trying to heal the past. Because when you're having trauma, when you're hypervigilant, you're living in the past. You're literally living in the past. The past has come to the present. So that's, that's where hypervigilance comes in. And that's why it's important to heal your trauma and work on that. Someone asked where I'm from. As I said, Minneapolis, Minnesota, land of no tigers. You know what I learned too is black bears aren't that dangerous at all. People think that, but black bears are really afraid of people. It was interesting. I was up, and this is nothing to do with anything, but I'm maybe I just need to change the topic a little bit. You know, switch it up. But I went up to uh, up up north, as we say here, by a place called Lake Vermilions, huge lake. It's really pretty up there. About a few hours up north, towards the northern tip of Minnesota. And it's interesting, they have this bear sanctuary. Maybe I could tie this into mental health. We'll see if I could pull that off. But they have this bear sanctuary. Um, and it's like it's out of ways, even from, you know, the lake there. And so my buddy and I, we like we heard about it. And we went up, drove about another hour out. 
There's something beautiful in this beautiful wooded area. Well, here's the thing. Someone said unless you threaten their cubs, but actually, here's an interesting there's an interesting point about that, and this is what we learned at the sanctuary. Maybe they're just trying to, you know, make their bears look like and they're in the best light. This was so damn cool. So it was like an old logging or trapping, I don't know, it was you know, an old um, yeah, the guy owned it and yeah, he was like a logger. I don't know. There's there some kind of compound he had up there. Um, but he was having issues with bears and he tried all these things. I mean, as far as like even shooting them, but they would still come back. Um, and eventually I think he found that he would just kind of do this like, here, we'll tie it to mental health or addiction. He did this like harm reduction where he would feed them so that they wouldn't get into the other stuff. And, you know, into his food or to, you know, breaking into the, you know, into the dwellings. And so, so he would feed them at the same time every day as a means of heart. Well, what happened was, so we're related to psychology again, the dinner bell rang and all these bears would come and they would describe it like a, a bears treat this place like a fast food joint where they'll just kind of come and go and they'll see some of the same. And so over the years, I've been doing this for like 30 years and they just kept it going because I think there would be issues if they stopped doing it. Um, it could actually like be harmful to them or some of them maybe rely on it. I don't know. Um, but they just kept it up as a bear sanctuary. So you go and they like pull you right up and they used to have it where you could just walk among them. These are wild bears. And so for years, you would you would be able to just go and feed the bears, the wild ones, and nothing bad ever happened except once because someone broke a rule and they like held it up and the bear like jumped up and not in a malicious way, but clawed her face and totally effed her face up. And since then, then they stopped doing that. I mean, you'd think like, of course, something would go wrong, but apparently they went many years and nothing bad ever happened with the bears. And it's interesting, the staff, they have these like interns and they come from like all over the world. It's, oh, it's, someone asked where it is. It's by Lake Vermilion. It's like an hour away from that area. Um, and I highly recommend going. It was so freaking cool. And so we went up. Yeah. And so you go and it says you go in the lot, you pay, you're in the parking lot. And like, there's all these like people work, like these volunteers, all like young, like in their early twenties or college kids. I think a lot of them, they're like, uh, like doing environmental programs and they'll come do like summer internships. So they were there doing this internship and they, they were bringing buckets by the cars. We're like, what is going on with the buckets? We're like, Oh, that's shit. We're like what? They're like, yeah, they don't like their own shit. So we're putting it by your cars because otherwise sometimes the bears will like start eating your tires. <laughs> it was, I was like, Oh, okay. That's interesting. Um, and when you're driving there, they say, if you see a bear honk, cause they want you to like associate cars with bad, um, or generally people, but yeah, so there's all these volunteers. So then they pull you up like right next to the stairwell and you go and then there's this big observation deck. So you're in the middle of the woods, you're on this deck and you can kind of walk around and then, you know, you come at like feeding time and then all of a sudden like five o'clock rolls in and some of these bears start to roll in. You're like, whoa. And some of these things are huge. I mean, there's all sorts of baby and there's like different color bears and, you know, black bears that could be brown. Sing that song. I could be brown, I could be blue. 
They could be brown, they could be black, they could be violet sky. They could be hurtful and purple. But I guess they used to have spirit bears too, which are like that genetic variant where they're like white. And they're supposed to be, you know, mystical, magical bears. They had all these like famous bears that went through over the years they would talk about. And um, yeah, it was an incredible experience because you're like right up and close. And it was interesting, like the volunteers, like they were just among the bears. They were just like walking around. They were, you know, the mothers with their cubs and everything. And then we learned about all, yeah, everything. So I learned a lot about black bears that day. It's pretty cool. However, I mean, they were really stressing that these things are not dangerous at all. Like they are way more afraid of you. And they said, even if you mess with their cubs, here's the most they'll do. They do a, they bluff. They do a bluff charge. So they'll charge at you, but they'll stop. So their first line of defense is they'll bluff. Even though these are big, powerful bears and they're fast as all hell. Brown bears, those are the ones you got to look out for. Like grizzlies, brown bears, they'll fuck your shit up. Like they'll, they'll wreck you. Um, and they're, they'll be more aggressive. Like if you, like those are the ones, if you surprise, like those are the ones, if you surprise them or you come up on their cubs, you're done. Yeah. You could kiss your, yourself goodbye. What's up, Jay boy? And yeah, so then what they said too is they'll act like if you went to mess with one of their cubs, they actually won't do anything. They'll just take their other cubs and leave. They'll kind of like sacrifice the one because because they're like like because if something bad happens to them, then the rest of their cubs are orphans, so they just kind of sacrifice one. So. Yeah, J-Boy, just laying in bed listening. Well, what do you think? What do you think of the bear bear story? I don't know. I think we could end it there. Well, this has been awesome. I appreciate everyone coming in. We had quite a few. I probably guess we had about 6,000 people in and out. Some people probably just popped in. They're like, screw this guy and left. But that was awesome. So reminder, so please subscribe. I'm going to be releasing this on YouTube and on my podcast. You could get that on Spotify, Apple, whatever podcast catcher, as they say. And if you subscribe, I will send you over some free therapy guides that I wrote and part of my book. So everything's in the link tree in my bio or on my website. Um, go find my podcast, my YouTube link, and then my email. And then just send me an email, let me know you did, and I'll send that over. All right, we got a couple first-timers. Chica said you enjoy me. I love it. Keep coming around. Let's get to know you. Uh, Mother of Monsters. It's a great name. She said she just found me. Love it. And I appreciate you participating. And that's awesome. So she subscribed as well. So we got some new people in the club. I always love that. So let's see. We're oh, two hours and 12 minutes. Not bad. Well, maybe that'll kill some boredom. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. This has been awesome. And we'll talk to you soon.